Hello. Okay, would you stand with me? In reverence for the reading of the Holy Scriptures, and this is from Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. So, get ready. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. I got a hair on my mouth. Um, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each, work, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of God, and you may be seated. That was truly impressive baby wrangling. <laughs> Give her a round of applause. That's a, that's, those are second kid skills right there. It's awesome. And thank you, Griffin, for your contributions. Um, Well, hey, I don't even, I think I forgot to introduce myself uh, earlier. My name's Cameron, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Super, super big honor to be with you. So stoked that you're here worshiping with us this morning. Um, Whether it's your first time, your minieth time, whether you're a follower of Jesus, whether you are just dipping your toe in to see what this stuff is all about, doesn't matter. We're so glad you're here. So glad you're here. and we've been, this is the last of a four-week series, this is number four, uh, that we've been in for the last month or so, uh, called Theology and Community. And uh, we, we started with, with acknowledging just something that's, that's going on in our world, in our culture. Uh, it's probably always been going on, but it's especially prevalent and present today right now, which is the, I, the, the tendency for people um, to concoct religions of their own choosing. Uh, to curate religions, to, pick, to piecemeal together, picking and choosing elements of things that we like uh, and rejecting things that we don't like until we end up with a religion tailor-made to our own personal sensibilities. Um, and we've mentioned, we mentioned the first week, I think we've mentioned every week, that Christians are not immune to this impulse. Um, Christians, just as much as anyone else, have the tendency and the desire to try to make things more comfortable for ourselves when we encounter Jesus and when we encounter his scriptures. Um, and so we've, we, the, the goal of the series was to talk about 
how the fact that one of the most important things we can do if we want to be faithful, and I hope, I don't have to retread all that, but if you're a follower of Jesus, I hope your desire is to be faithful to him, first and foremost. Uh, and we've all got ways in which we've got things wrong. There's not a person in here who has perfectly airtight theology and understanding of Jesus and who obviously who lives in perfect accord with the commands of God. We're all flawed. But hopefully, if you're a Christian, your desire <laughs> is to more and more and more over time conform your life and your will to his. Um, and part of that's in your theology as well. Anyway, what we said was that one of the most important things we can do if we want to do that, if we want to be faithful in this task, is to not do it alone, is to do it in community. And we've talked about basically four different layers uh, of community. We started with Jesus, and that might be funny. What do you mean in community with Jesus? Well, uh, we do theology in community with Jesus. We can say it's genuinely in community because Jesus is alive. He is alive and reigning right now. He did not disappear into the ether uh, he is in the throne room of God at the right hand of the Father now, waiting to return bodily, that same physical resurrection body he walked out of the tomb with. He has it right now. We will see it one day. We will see him in the recreated new heavens and new earth, and we will get to worship with him. But in the meantime, he's not nowhere, and he's not non-existent. He is alive. So our first layer of community is with the risen King Jesus and, and, uh, and with his words. We argued that he was, as he, the author of Hebrews writes, he, you know, God's revealed himself in many ways, through the prophets, whatever else, but now in his son. So we start there. But then if you, if you follow Jesus, you have to trust what he trusted. And Jesus takes all that authority of being the incarnate son of God when he said, hey, you want to know the father? Look at me. To see me is to see the father. He takes all that authority and he says, Trust the scriptures. In his day, the New Testament hadn't been written yet, of course. It was written later, reflecting back on his life by, by the apostles and those uh, carrying on the, the teachings of the apostles. Um, but Jesus said, trust the scriptures. You trust me, trust the scriptures. And so our second layer of community is you trust Jesus, then you trust his scriptures and the Holy Spirit that we come to see that Jesus believed inspired these scriptures, that they're trustworthy for us. And not only did the scripture, did the spirit inspire those scriptures, but the spirit, we're told, countless times throughout the Bible that he illuminates them for us. When you come to your Bible as a believer, you don't do that in isolation either. You have the spirit of God indwelling you, helping you come to terms. And again, that doesn't keep you from error or me from error, but it is crucially important that we understand that layer of community. First with Jesus, then with the scriptures, the biblical authors, the Holy Spirit enabling them to write the things that God wanted in those books. That's the like, top tier, like those are the things that hopefully you say, man, that is the, those two, Jesus and his scriptures and the spirit working with them, that is the final authority. If I want to follow after Jesus, if I want to be a Christian, if I want to be um, all of these things, there you go, that's it. But then there's these kind of secondary authorities as well that we talked about last week. We talked about doing theology in the context of community with the universal church. Every believer, like, so I don't know if you think about this or not, but um, if you're a believer, you have been grafted into a family that transcends this one local church, a family that's made up of every person who has bent the knee to Jesus, who've put their trust in him across our globe today, which is an increasingly, incredibly diverse array of people. 
Um, and not only that, take it horizontally across the globe, but then you have to go back down through history, all the way back to the day of Pentecost when the church was birthed. We are part of this family, this family that transcends time and history, global, historic, the universal church. And we talked about, man, there are some key things that, that you could define as the core of, of Christian orthodoxy that were um, kind of decided on back before. There were any splits in the church in these, these, these creeds. We said, man, that's not scripture, but we need to pay close attention to that. And then we argued another layer here is just getting to know, like, besides the content of the creeds, and how have Christians thought about things? An important way to know uh, if you're on the right track theologically, and this isn't infallible, to say you're debating something, you're thinking through something, is there a sense in which all Christians basically at all times basically have been in uniform thought about this thing? If so, man, we want to pay attention to that and not try to take some kind of holier-than-thou paternalistic attitude that says, no, we're, no, we're going to figure it all out for the first time today in our city, in our time. We just don't want to do that. That's at least what we argued for. We want to do theology in community with the universal church of believers. It's so much wider, honestly, that we could even imagine. What a privilege to get to do that. So that brings us to the fourth point, fourth, fourth layer of community, which is probably the one that, the, really the only one that comes to mind if you actually think of the word community, which is theology in the context of your local church. This local church, hey, here we are. Here's one right here, Dorf Oak Northeast. Um, the f- most crucial, uh, or not most crucial, but the final uh, that we're going to discuss in terms of these four absolutely crucial layers of communities, the local church. In his truly excellent book, Mere Christianity, um, how many people have read Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis? That is a lot. That's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a perennial classic for a reason. So in Mere Christianity, if you're not familiar, he's, C.S. Lewis was an Anglican thinker um, who basically, in his own way, was trying to argue for kind of a basic... Orthodox Christianity. That's what mere means. He's, he's trying to say, I want to get beyond all the things that divide the different denominations and the big branches and all that stuff. What is just basic mere Christianity? Um, it's a great book. I commend it to you. We actually have it over there in the book, bookstore if you're interested in picking it up. But, but he's trying to argue for this basic Christianity, but he acknowledges that his mere Christianity was not enough one would have to move beyond the general Christianity that he lays out into more specific forms. Um, He says this. uh, This is, I think, in the introduction. I can't remember now. I didn't put the reference down. But he says, I hope no reader will suppose that that, that mere Christianity is here put forward as an alternative to the creeds of the existing communions, as if man could adapt it in preference to congregationalism or Greek orthodoxy or whatever. So he's saying, what I'm arguing for with this mere Christianity is not to be instead of a particular denomination or church affiliation or whatever else. He says it's more like a hall out of which doors open into several different rooms. If I can bring anyone into that hall, I, ha- I shall have done what I attempted in this book. But it's in the rooms, not in the hall, that there are fires and chairs and meals. That sounds really lovely. The hall is a place to wait in, a place from which to try the various doors, not a place to live in. So his illustration works not just moving from general theology to more specific. Like, okay, you've got, say you affirm in the basic level, yes, the, the, the Trinity, the, the divinity of Jesus, salvation by grace through faith, you want to follow Jesus. 
you can't just leave it there. As we mentioned last week, the Bible's a lot longer <laughs> than like a one paragraph creedal statement or whatever. So his illustration of the hall, but actually the rooms being where the action is, it's not just about moving from general to specific theology, but thinking of yourself as a disciple of Jesus, as a member not only of his universal church, but as a specific local, in a specific local church. Because a lot of people want to just stop there, like, yeah, I'm part of the big C universal church, but they never actually belong to a local family. Your membership, if you're a Christian, if you've trusted Jesus for salvation, you have this membership in the global, historic, universal church. But that membership is expressed, it must be expressed in flesh and blood ways in participation in a local assembly of believers. This is where you actually live out the reality of your discipleship, where you experience your functioning in the body of Christ. You experience your home as a daughter or as a son in the king's family. You experience your station as an ambassador for his kingdom. And the universal church, one day, we read about it last week in Revelation, one day, the universal church will all be together. There won't be all these doctrinal divisions and things. We'll just be with the king in glory. And all these little debates we have and things we're divided over, he'll say, no, it's just this. Here's the answer. <laughs> and we'll go, oh, cool. We should have known that a little earlier. Um, but it will be beautiful. Beautiful. The universal church together and the, feast of this, the, the picture of this giant banquet, this feast where we're all participating, dining with the king. That's a beautiful picture but we have to wait for that day. In this life, each little local church becomes this little preview or a picture of that day that's coming, that we long for. For now, this is where that, that big mysterious thing becomes flesh and blood. In our city, here, today, 2022, in Portland, each little local church gets to be a preview of that day. So, today we're talking about the importance of doing theology in community with your local church. That's the agenda. And we're going to use Ephesians 4 that was read for us to do it. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for another morning to be together. Um, Father, what happens in this room on this day is not all of the church. Um, it's not all of the church because you have disciples all over the place, even in this city, worshiping right now in different buildings, Father, all across Portland and beyond. Uh, but it's also not the, not the case that what happens in this place is all that happens at Door of Hope Northeast, Father. We are a family. We are a community that transcends one meeting time in one room on one day of the week, Father. And whether it's what happens here or in community groups or in just the organic conversations and groups and meetings that happen around coffee tables and at the pub and in the park and in living rooms and uh, on bike rides and whatever, Father, all of that is an opportunity to do theology, to think about you, to be sharpened as we do it by our brothers and sisters in the way they are gifted, uniquely different from me and different from them. And it's in your grace and in your wisdom that you've made it this way, that we don't, as we always say, get saved into a vacuum, but into a family and into a family that actually is together in flesh and blood reality where we are. So we thank you for that reality, Father. We pray as we think about these things this morning, you'd guide us, lead us into truth, keep us from falsehood. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Well, we're going to look at Ephesians 4. We're going to take it in three chunks, uh, the first half of chapter 4. Um, but we just have to tee up the book of Ephesians. I don't know how much you know about Ephesians. Uh, you can go check out Bible Project, as always, has an amazing little five-minute summary that will make this point very, very well. But in the Apostle, in the book of Ephesians, um, there's a book that, there's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote, uh, a personal letter to a church community in this, this city called Ephesus. And for the first three chapters, so right up to where we pick up in 4.1 here, he's focused on, on crucial theology. Crucial theology, things that they need to know, this fledgling church needs to know about Jesus. He's trying to solidify key doctrinal ideas for them that they would not forget. It talks about glorious gospel truths, about the redeeming grace of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins, other mind-blowing spiritual blessings, and especially about the ways in which the gospel unites Jews and Gentiles. Even in the midst of all kinds of hostilities that historically existed, these two groups could be made one in the gospel of Jesus. And there's these beautiful prayers for the Ephesian Christians that God would help them understand the beautiful depth of these things. So read that. Go, it won't take you long. Go read Ephesians 1 through 3 sometime this week. Key doctrine that Paul said do not miss is laid out there. But then in chapter 4, Paul takes a turn. He's been talking about theology, and then he turns into practice. Now it's application. Now it's what do you actually do? In light of all this stuff, how are you to actually live? How is this group of believers supposed to take these amazing truths and live them out in flesh and blood ways in their community? To let these truths actually shape their day-to-day, day-in, day-out lives and relationships. So even, honestly, baked into the the very book, the structure of the book of Ephesians, um, is this idea that theology laid out first, must then be lived out in community in the local church. And remember John Frame's definition of theology from our first week. Theology, he said, I think this is a great definition, is the application of the word of God to pers- by persons to all areas of life. It can't just stop with what we think. It can't just be ideas rattling around in the head. It has to actually come out into how we live. Ephesians makes that clear. So read the first six verses with me again. That therefore, therefore, is in light of all this doctrine and theology he's laid out, I therefore, because of all that, I, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. All that stuff I've just talked about. Live in a manner worthy of it. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. First thing I just want to say is that it's implicit here as it is throughout the rest of the New Testament, but the New Testament authors, they knew nothing of a disciple of Jesus, a Christian who is willfully disconnected from a local church. That category just doesn't exist. It's just assumed. If you become a follower of Jesus, then you instantly will get grafted in to some community of people who are trying to follow that Jesus together. It can't be done alone, at least not for long. 
And the local church then is, this group, is where this group of strangers who have each come to trust and believe in the free gift of Jesus for forgiveness and future hope, all these amazing things, and who've committed to follow him in submission to his scriptures, who step into the broader family of Jesus' disciples that make up the universal church across time and geography, all this crazy stuff. They commit to one another. They commit to one another in a particular place to follow Jesus together. The fact that in the church, the Spirit of God brings together people from all these different walks of life and that they somehow find a unity in Him that transcends all their very real differences is the point. Unity in the one faith. But what you instantly see, okay, that's nice, that's a nice big picture, but what you instantly see in this, and it's easy to miss this because it's just like, sounds like it's just like virtues that He's talking about, which I guess it is, but is that the local church is not a cakewalk. We instantly see here from the get-go that it is a diffi- it's a crucible. It's a crucible. Why do I say that? Notice what he's demanding. First, humility and gentleness. That implies that there's going to be conflict in this local church. There's going to be disappointment. There are going to be bruised egos. If there weren't, there would be no need to be gentle. Everything was simple and easy and everyone was just getting along perfectly. I wouldn't have to say, hey, let's have humility with one another. Let's be gentle with one another. It presupposes the conflict. Or patience. It says do it with patience. Implying that your patience will be tested. If you commit to a local church, you actually show up, you actually start getting involved in the lives of the people in this room. You're going to need patience (laughs) to do that. He mentions bearing with one another in love. That bearing, it's the idea there will be weight to carry. You will have to like suck it up and bear the weight of conflict and people's burdens, people's tragedies. Sometimes it's easier to just be isolated when people are going through really hard things. I don't want to get too close to that. He says not in the church. It's for that. It's to bear one another's burdens, bear one another's shortcomings, bear one another's like wrongs towards you. It's baked into the deal, says Paul. And eager to maintain unity and peace. Maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Implying that it's something that has to be fought for. It has to be maintained. It doesn't happen on its own. Unity and peace will be tested. Love this quote. A book we always keep stocked over there on the shelf. Uh, If you haven't read it, I would highly recommend it. It's called Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, Just a great exploration of of really the, the beautiful difficulty of doing life with other Christians. He says this. He says, we have one another only through Christ, but through Christ we do have one another wholly and for all eternity. That dismisses once and for all every clamorous desire for something more. One who wants more than what Christ has established does not want Christian brotherhood. He's looking for some extraordinary social experience which he's not found elsewhere. He's bringing muddled and impure desires into Christian brotherhood. Just at this point, Christian brotherhood is threatened most often at the very start by the greatest danger of all the danger of being poisoned at its root, the danger of confusing Christian brotherhood with some wishful idea of religious fellowship or confounding the natural desire of the devout heart for community with the spiritual reality of Christian brotherhood. 
Only that fellowship with fa which faces such disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight, begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to him. Bonhoeffer's just saying, like, look, Jesus has established a church, this messy family, and if your expectation is that it's only going to be joyful and only going to be easy and only going to be some kind of like this amazingly beautiful thing that never has conflict or whatever, you will actually kill the church because it will never be that which you're expecting of it. And it's not supposed to, not in this life, not yet. We have to be disillusioned of those expectations on some level to begin to grasp in faith, the promise that actually is given to the church for what it's supposed to be. Another thing we might say here on, on this is that, um, you know, we've done this before, we'll probably do it again before too long, but there's, there's, this, uh, there's this verb or uh, this word in the, in, in the New Testament Greek, alelon, which means one another. It occurs 60, 61 times, depending on how you count, uh, in the context of church relationships. Things we do for one another as believers, and it's all kinds of stuff. The, the most common one, the one that comes up most, is love one another. Love one another. But all these things, all these commands, so much of what Jesus commands us to do and other New Testament writers cannot actually, they make no sense apart from a vital connection to a local church. It requires proximity to one another, one another, if that makes sense. So, one reason we do theology in the local churches because that's the way we get to experience and model the one faith, that one faith we've been talking about, one Lord, in actual practice. You cannot experience it in isolation. You can think about it. You could write papers about it. You could uh, write cool blogs about it. You could Instagram about it, whatever, but you can't actually experience and model it unless you are deeply invested and connected with real flesh and blood people in the local church. Amen? That's point one. Point two from the next few verses. It says this, verse seven. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Our second point, that we need to do theology with the local church in order to experience the beautiful collection of diverse gifts who supply what we lack. Here, talking about spiritual gifts, he's, he's, you know, elsewhere you'll read about spiritual gifts, he talks about the gift as the thing, but here he talks about the people who are gifted in such a way, so he's, he's talking about people exercising their spiritual gifts, specifically these five, but that's not an exhaustive list, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, there are many, many other spiritual gifts, and probably more than are even listed in the New Testament, I would say, um, and what this, what this tells us is, number, first thing is that no one has no need for other people. This diversity of gifts and abilities that Jesus has given to every one of his followers is necessary for filling your gaps and filling mine, for shoring up our blind spots, for helping you and me to see what we don't see. 
There is no one, there's that metaphor that Paul used of the body of Christ. You know, some people are feet, some people are hands, some people are this, some people are that. You know, you can take it as far as you want to go. Some people are the heart, some people are the lungs, some people are this or that. Um, His point is that no one can say, I don't need you to anyone else if the thing's going to function properly. No, there's no one who has no need for the gifts of others. So, I don't know, that, hopefully this, this connection seems clear to you, but, um, you know, one thing that's interesting uh, in doing theology in communities, like, we, oh, we all have blind spots. And something me and Josh do, one little way Josh Wilder and I do theology in community every week or so, uh, is to do sermon review. Every week we, or almost every week, sometimes we miss but we get together, we debrief the previous sermon and try to critique it and with the goal of like lessons learned for doing, you know, growing and doing better next time or whatever. Um, and then we talk about the upcoming sermon, but in that little, re- little review time, uh, there's, there's always things that are just, man, that is true. Like, and I didn't see it that way. Um, and Josh brought up for me a great critique from last week's sermon, which was this. He said, there might be people who, who heard that sermon, Cameron, who are actually going to be discouraged from reading their Bibles. And I was like, shut up. <laughs> You're fired. No. And I was like, oh, no. What did, what did I say? What did I do? And he was saying, well, you know, if, if there's this idea that, you know, our cultural blinders are so severe that, like, if we're not making all these new friends who are from different backgrounds or different church traditions or whatever, or different cultures, and we don't have time to read all these books that can help us get outside of our local context, then, like, basically we're, we're doomed to error eternally for reading our Bibles. And I thought that was a really good point. Um, to which I just want to say explicitly, if you heard that last week, like, man, I might as well not even do this stuff because I don't have time to make a new friend. <laughs> I don't have time to read another book. Um, I just want you to say the Bible, I just want to say the Bible is meant to be read and to be studied. There is a clarity to it by the enabling power of the Spirit that anyone and everyone can grasp. And it's not dependent on any of those things for you to be a sincere and faithful disciple of Jesus. Amen? Um, part of the beauty, though, of the local church is that here, you do get to rub shoulders. And again, this microcosm of the universal church we were talking about last week, that you get to rub shoulders with people who don't look like you, were raised in different places than you, have different perspectives on these things than you. Maybe some of them have read all those books, you know? And whenever you're like in community group, you're like, I don't get this. Someone's like, hey, actually, well, you thought about this. I've encountered this thing. Like, here it is, people. The vital connection to the local church fills these gaps in us, you know? And there's always opportunity to grow more and reach more and get outside of our bubbles, of course, but man, that's part of the beauty and the benefit of the local church. Different people with different backgrounds, education levels, exposure to outside voices, and on and on that we can learn from and who can learn from you. Amen? So there you go. This is the place, ideally, where so many different views and experience and levels of vacation, divinely given spiritual gifts come together to make one another and the whole collection of us better than we would be otherwise. This is it. That's what this is for. So I want to think about specifically, like, because all of us are going to be here at some point. Maybe you're in this boat right now. I don't know. I don't know everyone's story, of course. But there are going to be periods, every Christian has them, of struggle and doubt. We're sitting on it, reevaluating, like, do I believe this stuff? 
Or do I believe this one thing that, as far as I understand, is kind of part of what Christianity is and what Christians have always believed or whatever? You're going to have periods of doubt and struggling. And committing to the local church is part of a pre-commitment to Jesus when those hard times come. So I'm going to speak to the people who are not right now racked in a season of severe doubt. We've always got a little bit, probably. But if you're not, like, in a crazy season of doubt, I say to you, commit to a local church as part of a pre-commitment to Jesus when those hard times come. Commit to the local church where you can actually come to people and say, hey, here's what I'm struggling with and where you actually want to, A, be wept with. First thing, like someone to come alongside and say, hey, that is hard. I've struggled with that same thing. Sometimes it's like, I don't have an answer. I don't know. I literally do not know the answer to your question. I'm just going to cry with you or wrestle with you or, or lament with you or whatever. It's the commitment to say, hey, I actually want to learn from others. I want to actually be known. When my faith is tested, right? And this is a place like, like if you commit to the local church when the hard times come, you're pre-committing to like bring those things into this community and let people challenge you. Like, hey, I don't think you're thinking of this right. Let people encourage you. Let people scaffold you. Sometimes you just need someone to believe for you for a season. Just to say like, this makes no sense to me, but I don't know. Vivian's a smart person and a, a, a wonderful person, and if she can believe these things, like, that will carry me through at least one more day, you know? I've been there. I suspect most of us have been. Because we have a, it takes willingness to want Jesus more than your own preferences, you commit to the local church, and whenever those preferences get challenged, you actually have people around you to do all these things, encourage, challenge, whatever people who can receive your confession of sin, all this stuff. And I would just say, too, like, it's where you have the benefit of meeting up with pastors and elders and other leaders of the church to ask questions, and, like, that's what we're here for. And that doesn't make me an expert on really anything, but I just say that I'm available. And I don't even know if you've thought through the logic of this. The fact that I am employed by this church, like, like several of us here, me and Josh and Darren, hopefully others at some point, um, like, you are giving your money to this congregation in part to have someone who is available, <laughs> who, like, has had the chance to, like, maybe devote more time to some of these things than you, that you can actually come to and just cry with or ask questions to or yell at if you need to. That's fine. <laughs> like, that's why we are here. That's part of this thing. And there are some of you that, like, you know, I'm, being a pastor is so weird. You get, it's so easy to get isolated and insulated from things going on in the real world. And you're like, I don't know how to talk to people. I need people who are immersed in your homes and immersed in your jobs and immersed in cultures that I'm not familiar with to just say like, hey, this is, how, this is what's going on out there and you don't know. Yes, I do need to know that. It cuts both ways. It cuts both ways. So what we see here is that there is no one who, is, who has no need for the other. There is no one who gets by like self-sufficiently without the aid of the brothers and sisters here in the local church. The flip side of that is this. There is no one here who is not needed by the rest. Did you know that? That's also part of Paul's metaphor in 1 Corinthians. It's not just that you have need for everyone. Everyone else has, needs of, of, has need of you. Like, you are gifted in ways. I don't know what they are, probably. 
but you are gifted in ways strategically to equip and help make this whole thing be healthy and function that it might grow up into Christ-likeness and maturity. Did you know that? And that's different. Some, for some of you, that might be teaching. Like, there are probably men and women sitting in here who have these latent gifts of teaching that you don't know about yet. And we need to know because we need you here. But it's not just that. It's like shepherding, caring for people, crying with people. Um, honestly, Paul lists administration. Like people who are just, we're probably so type A and nobody gets it, but like the church needs you. That's not me. Like, and it's not just the stuff that makes the organizational stuff function either. It's, it's, there's these gifts that maybe never will be expressed in like a formalized role or whatever, but it's absolutely crucial to this church being as healthy as it can be. We need you. I don't know how yet for a lot of you, but I'm certain that we do. Um, before too long, as a sidebar, we're hopefully going to take some time as a community to really like, dig in and to explore how, like, how do we identify how we're gifted? How do you actually go about that process? And then how do we actually become, like, like make ourselves available for the maturing of this broader community? That'll be a really good thing for us. I think it's been too long. Um, so we're going to do that soon. That's point two. We need to do theology in the context of local church to experience this beautiful collection of diverse gifts who supply what we lack, and so we can supply what others lack as well. Point three, last point. Let's read 4, 13 through 16, the last part of this section. It says, this is all, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is an astounding sentence to me. That's where we're going as a community, by God's grace. We are waiting to attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Wow. Don't let that, one, don't let that phrase sail by. So that we may no longer be children. What's the opposite of maturity? <laughs> Childhood, childness, childlike, not necessarily childlikeness, but childishness, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped. Again, that's everyone's gifts. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We see an important, in this, in this section, we see an important metric of immaturity. I think that's a really powerful image. Someone who's immature in the faith is someone who is easily tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind. Waves and wind of what? Of doctrine. By human cunning. By craftiness and deceitful schemes. There's all these things that want to lure us away from the one true faith once for all delivered to the saints. There's all kinds of things that want to lure us away from our first love from Jesus. And it's really easy to just be blown about to and fro. Oh, that sounds good. Oh, that sounds nice. Oh, that sounds wonderful. And that's who we all are. That's who I am, left to my own devices. If we're untethered from Jesus, from his scriptures, and from his church, we are, we are that. 
tossed to and fro. And so I can't tell you how many times um, I've only had an, an Instagram. I run the, the Door of Hope Northeast uh, Church Instagram account. That's only, well, actually, I had an Instagram account for like a year in like 2000. It doesn't matter what year. <laughs> Let's not think too hard about it. Years ago, before we lived in Portland, and then I, and then I deleted it, got rid of it. Uh, but I've sent, I now have a, the Instagram app on my phone uh, for, for church business, for posting the Door of Hope Northeast church Instagram stuff, which I'm not very good at. If any of you are like social media savants and want to help, would happily let you take that off my plate. Um, let's talk about it. But, uh, you know, I can't tell you how many times like things will come across. Like basically I follow like Portland churches is about what we follow. And that's just like, oh, what are the other churches doing? This is helpful to see what they're doing. Um, but, you know, it just suggested posts all the time on your feed. And I can't tell you how many times, like, Instagram theology, you get, like, just, like, four, four pictures with, like, a two-sentence block of text that's, like, here's everything you need to know about this really complex issue. It's the same thing as Twitter. doesn't matter how long a Twitter feed is. Like, it's never as long as, like, a couple paragraphs, you know? That's the limit of what could be discussed on Twitter. And I just want to name it, like, this is not a trustworthy place to get theology, you know? It's easy. It's an easy place to get theology, which makes it an easy place to be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Because it's really easy to read, some, read someone write 10 really authoritative-sounding sentences and go, that sounds right. That sounds good. This person is speaking with a lot of confidence, <laughs> you know? Um, but gosh, that is no sound way. We have to develop critical thinking skills and do it through the means that we've been talking about now for four weeks. Always ask yourself before you, before you co-sign something like that, have you deeply reflected on what is being presented to you? Where are their sources? Are there footnotes? There are not footnotes. It's Twitter, <laughs> you know? Where did they get this information? Have they, thought, have they interacted with this source or that? Have they run it through, you know, how Christians have always thought about these things? Where do people, you know, has there been a consensus about this for a long time? You know, like all these things should instantly come to bear for us. That just seems to me like the, the, the quickest and surest way to be tossed about to and fro by, uh, by letting 230 characters or less shape your theology. The things of God are so much deeper than that. They're so much more complicated than that. They're so much more complicated than that. So, immaturity. And I, I, ho I hope you see the connection here. Like This is very, very closely related to the heart of why we'd even take the time to do a series like this that we wouldn't be tossed to and fro by everything that comes our way. But then, Paul counters that with this vision for maturity. It's, it's unity of the faith. It's the knowledge of the Son, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Not this immaturity stuff. Not this immaturity stuff. The idea is that Jesus is taking us together. This, like, all these, this is all plural. Like, this, we read this very individualistically. Jesus is going to mature me to mature manhood. But this is we all. This is we all. This is the, the church in view. Jesus is taking us collectively somewhere, if we will allow him by his spirit. He's taking us to maturity, also known as sanctification, also known as Christ-likeness. And he's doing it for us together as the church. 
And so, if we're gonna allow him to do this work, we're gonna be sharpened, we're not gonna be blown, we're gonna blown around by every wind of doctrine. We, we, we have to learn all kinds of things. But one of the things that's really helpful uh, for me that I thought it would be kind of silly not to mention before this series was over um, is this idea of, I don't ever think I've mentioned a sermon. But Gary Brashears has this four-tier level of, of theology thing, levels of essentiality. He basically says, um, here's a grid. You come, like, basically you have a top tier issues that he says are issues you are willing to die for. Like, these are the things that, like, you are so, are so clear in the scripture, have been so cherished by the church throughout its entire life, that to deny one of these things is to essentially deny something that's crucial to the gospel, crucial to what it means to be a Christian. But not everything's that issue. And part of growing into maturity is seeing that, like, every disagreement we have is not a die for issue. You know that, right? <laughs> He says we have a second category. His second category is what he calls divide for issues. These are things that for you are so clear and evident and present in the scriptures that like to compromise, it feels to compromise something deeply crucial. But if we divide over these things, it, it's not to say that the, uh, the person we disagree with is not a Christian. You know that, right? You can have serious, serious doctrinal disagreement with another Christian over serious things and say, I probably cannot be a part of this church anymore. I probably cannot have like cooperative fellowship with you anymore. But I'm not saying you're not a believer. I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm not saying you're not a brother or a sister. You know you can do that, right? Let's divide for. But then he has a third tier that he says, listen, he says, listen, some things aren't that intense. They matter. They're worth discussing, but they're debate for issues. And we don't have to go our separate ways. We'll sit right side by side. We'll continue to work together. We might serve on the same ministry team, whatever. And we say, yes, this matters. We should try to get to the bottom of it as best we can. But we don't have to divide. We just say, agree to disagree. That's great. I suspect there are a lot of us with these kinds of, these kinds of uh, differences in theology in this church. And I take, that, I take it that that's a good thing. And then he has a fourth category he just calls decide for, which is basically like, it's probably not even worth your time to debate this. <laughs> you know, there are some things that are just so fringy that it's like, let's just move on. <laughs> you know, let's just go, let's just get on with this. So die for, divide for, debate for, decide for. There's a really great book that came out that kind of uses basically those same categories called Finding the Right Hills to Die On. Um, it's worth your time. But that's part of maturity. It's as a community coming together to say like, what does it mean? What things must we die before we would relinquish as a church community? What things would we die for before we let them go? What things must we divide for? Where are the things that we say, this is an issue of being a Christian or not a Christian, saved or not saved, but it's so clear and so important to us that we're just gonna have to go our separate ways. And those are the kinds of things largely that distinguish the major denominations of Christianity and the major branches. They really matter. And it's not like, it's not frivolous that different church expressions exist. We're going, these are things that really matter. Doesn't mean you're not a brother or sister, but we've had to go our separate ways. And then what are the things that we just say? Yeah, let's talk about it. Let's debate it, whatever. Part of growing to this maturity is, is, is developing these categories and learning to see not all doctrine fits in the same one. Does that make sense? So, we want, the goal is maturity. And I just want, want you to know, um, if you're here, that we as a church, 
we as a church are committed, we are committed to the authority of Jesus. And we are committed to the authority of his infallible, inerrant, trustworthy scriptures. And we are committed to living out the historic Christian faith in our time and place. And we are gonna get things wrong. We already have things wrong. We don't know what they are, but it's just, a, it's just a guarantee. Like there is no one with airtight, perfect theology. But we just wanna say unambiguously, like that's what we are fighting for as a church community. So have grace when we fail. And there may be times when there's divisions that have to happen or whatever else, but that is what we are striving to do with all of our hearts. So, and if we're going to do that, both as individuals and community, we have to do it together. That's the whole point of Ephesians 4. There's glorious truth that we need to be unified around to preserve and protect, and we have to do it together. So, a very basic application of all this is just this. Keep showing up. Commit yourself to this community. And I don't just mean to a Sunday gathering. I hope that's clear, month in and month out, that we do not view like Sunday morning as the end-all, be-all of this church. What we do together in this room is crucially important. It's forming all of us week in and week out, but it is not the only thing. It is not the only thing. So commit yourself, keep showing up, both to our Sunday gatherings, in community especially. Keep putting yourselves, like forcefully willing yourself into the lives of your brothers and sisters here at this church. However you can, as tenaciously as you can. Um, in her book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, um, one of my favorite books from the last few years, man. Um, it's so amazing, but it's written by um, an Anglican priest. Her name is Tish Harrison Warren. She puts this so well. I think I've, I've read this before, but she says, she says, there are very few good meals that I can remember and a few truly terrible meals that I remember. But most of the meals I've ever eaten, thousands upon thousands, were utterly unremarkable. If you asked me what I ate for lunch three weeks ago on Monday, I couldn't tell you. And yet, that average, forgettable meal nourished me. Thousands of forgotten meals have brought me to today. They've sustained my life. They were my daily bread. And skipping ahead, she then says, word and sacrament sustain my life, yet they often do not seem life-changing. Quietly, even forgettably, they feed me. How should we respond when we find the word perplexing or dry or boring or unappealing? We keep eating and we receive nourishment and we keep listening and learning and taking our daily bread, and we wait on God to give us what we need to sustain us one more day. I would say that's what the Christian life feels like most days. There are mountaintop experiences, there are glorious breakthroughs, there are days when you feel like heaven and earth are meeting in truly unexplainable ways that you can't even verbalize. But I would say throughout the scriptures and in at least my own experience and the experience of most of the people that I know and trust who've been walking with Jesus for a long time, it's the quiet, unsexy, unastounding discipline of just taking one more step and one more meal, showing up to be in community with your brothers and sisters one more time. Like, just keep eating. I think there is deep, deep, 
deep, profound truth in that statement. So that's my call to all of us. You know, in this series, it's like we haven't even really talked much about theology, right? This is all like methodology and, and, and guardrails for things we do to actually start doing this. We have to start doing this together. What does it mean to, to, to do theology faithfully in community here as a local church? It's just to keep coming together and letting this un, you know, what's the word? This very simple, simple reality nourish us. Amen? So, to conclude, I just want to point out one last thing. Very last line. This is a glorious promise about Jesus taking this whole, you know, this body of different gifts, people working together and taking the whole thing, Jesus who's the head, making it grow so that it, quote, builds itself up in what? In love. And that's a crucial thing. We would be so remiss if we didn't get to that. The whole goal of the Christian life, you could say, is love. Love is the inseparable end of all of our theology. It's the inseparable end of what it even means to be a local church community. The great commandment, what did Jesus say? Love God, love people. All the law and the prophets can be summed up in those two things. It's the task of theology then to define that love, of course. But we could very faithfully state the end of the Christian life is to love God first and then to love your neighbor as yourself. And if all this stuff sounds overwhelming, you know, four weeks, we're talking about all this stuff, and so, oh man, what, what do I do with all this? Start here. He has first loved us. <laughs> he has first loved us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Though we were far from him, he came closer than we could possibly imagine to save you and to save me, to rescue us. The whole thing begins and ends with love. And so we've been loved by him. Hopefully, if you've come to realize that, you've, you've turned around and you've said, Jesus, thank you. And you've received that free gift in faith and in trust. And you've been welcomed into this family. And now here we are, 2022, Northeast Portland, stumbling around, trying to do this. We're making mistakes. We're going to get it wrong. There will be things that I know I have to repent of like a year from now or whatever. And things I am ashamed of before the throne room of God. And then he will say, there's grace. And he will do that for you too. There is grace and there is mercy and there is a love that transcends our failings that was bought for us on the cross. And so as we push forward, may we remember, we start because we have first been loved. If we get this stuff wrong, it's okay. He still loves you. He still loves me. And he still empowers us to love one another and to do it, to stumbling together here in this place and in our homes and across the coffee table or whatever else. That's what we're after. 1 Corinthians 8.1 includes this amazing phrase. It says, knowledge puffs up. Start talking about theology, it's really easy to start talking about this knowledge that puffs up. But love builds up. So Door of Hope Northeast, as we're working all this out, this is just the, the briefest of starting places for all this stuff. We're trying to be faithful in how we think about Jesus and apply what he's taught to our lives to live it out faithfully. May we remember the end is love. Amen?